Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, Dan Ambender here and excited to bring you another Cardio Nerds case report, a.k.a. CNCR. As a reminder, the CNCR series is designed to shine light on the hidden curriculum of medical storytelling. We learn together while discussing fascinating cases in this fun, engaging, and educational format. Each episode ends with an expert Cardio Nerd perspective and review, or what we call the eCPR segment, for a nuanced teaching from a content expert. We truly believe that hearing about a patient is the singular theme that unifies everyone at every level, from the student to professor emeritus. So with that, we are so excited to bring you this important discussion involving a patient with non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy and biventricular heart failure who had developed severe diuretic resistance, as told by some of the most compassionate physicians I know, Dr. Anjali Wagle, Dr. Nick Smith, and one of my most favorite heart failure attendings, Dr. Nisha Galotra. Remember, Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Before we get too nerdy, here's a word from one of our sponsors who makes this high-quality, free educational content possible. Hey, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit Coyle. This wonderful episode is made possible with support from Panacea Financial. We're lucky to have the founder of Panacea, MedPeed's faculty in Arkansas, and fellow cardiator Dr. Michael Jerkins with us. Michael, would you tell us what Panacea is and the vision behind its creation? Well, thanks for having me. I've been a proud cardio nerd for a long time myself and use these episodes to teach on rounds pretty frequently. But Panacea Financial is a digital bank that's built for doctors and doctors in training by doctors. So fellow physician co-founder Ned Palmer and I, we felt like we didn't have many fair options for banking because traditional banks viewed us as bad customers with our high debt and limited savings or income. And banks were never open when we had time off. Going back to even intern year, we had these conversations and eventually we created a digital bank that gives all customers concierge level service available 24-7, free checking nationwide, and loan options that are built just for doctors and, and trainees like our PRN personal loan that requires no co-signer to get up to $75,000 in as little as 24 hours at a rate that's less than half of a credit card. And no one should borrow more than they need, but training in life can be pretty expensive and doctors really honestly deserve a better option at financing. Well, that's just awesome, Michael. It seems to be a great resource that addresses many of the issues that a lot of us go through. But one of the reasons we're so proud to have your support is our shared mission with your foundation when it comes to promoting professional diversity and inclusion. Would you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing? Yeah, so our profits from Panacea Financial actually fund our foundation that aims to strengthen the pipeline of underrepresented minority physicians. And this year alone, we're awarding $50,000 in grants and scholarships to medical students, residents, and fellows. Because at Panacea, we aim to make medicine better by decreasing financial stress, but also by diversifying our workforce. Congratulations to you and your team for the incredible work you all are doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Cardi Nerds, to find out more, go to PanaceaFinancial.com to learn how you can join the growing number of physicians that expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC, and you can find more using the links in the episode description. Hey, Cardi Nerds, thanks for joining us for a trip back to Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland. We are joined by friends, colleagues from Johns Hopkins Cardiovascular Training Program. We have with us Dr. Nick Smith and Dr. Anjali Wagley. 
Folks, welcome to the show. Can't wait to learn from you. But first, tell the audience who you are. Hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Anjali Wagle, and I'm originally from Ohio, but moved all around the country and ultimately ended up at Johns Hopkins, where I'm a second year Osler Medical President. I'm interested in medical education and I'm planning to apply to cardiology fellowship this year. Hey, everyone. I'm Nick Smith. I was raised in the state of Maine. I went to undergrad there at Bowdoin College. I'm in my second year of cardiology fellowship here at Johns Hopkins, where I was also at for residency as part of the Janeway firm. I will continue on here as an interventional fellow, but only after completing a year of critical care. Certain medical education will play some role down the road as well, having been able to learn from the best. And here I mean Dan and Amit. I live in D.C. with my fiance and we both love the outdoors. I'm lucky we have Rock Creek Park right in our backyard so I get to run here in a really beautiful space all year round. Wow, Anjali, Nick, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to discuss the case that we're about to do. We go way back. Both you know you so well from Hopkins here, but I know that we have a lot to cover and a lot to talk about. So we're just going to jump right in. Nick, Anjali, take us to your favorite place in Baltimore so we can set the scene and start discussing this important case in cardiology. Awesome. So we're going to take our listeners to Union Brewery, which is a local microbrew in Baltimore. It has such a great outdoor space. It has giant Jenga and a delicious pizza oven. Also, there's an ice cream place right next door. Pizza, brewery, ice cream. Anjali, I am so in. Uh, Actually, I didn't realize you were from Ohio. So, you know, hopefully when you're done with residency, we can recruit you to get back over here for some training. But until then, what case do you guys have for us? So let me let me just say before we start that this case is fascinating in both its complexity and simplicity. Simplistic in that our goal today is merely to nerd out about diuretics, but this is not just a 45-minute talk about Lasix. In the earlier portions, you may find some of the information review, but stay with us. There are many layers to this episode. Because this is a case report about management challenges, it will not follow the format of a slow drip, drip, drip of information coded in diagnostic mystery. In fact, we may have to speed ahead more than we usually like to, skipping some aspects you may have questions on. I think there's a good reason for this because we want to leave ample time to talk about uncommon inpatient diuretic strategies, granular details about diuretic resistance. This episode is certain to elevate your understanding of heart failure physiology and reinvigorate your interest in the heart's greatest frenemy, the kidney. So without further ado, Anjali, let's hear about Natalie. I am so excited to tell you all about this case. So we're using the pseudonym Natalie. And Natalie is a local college student in her 20s with non-ischemic dilated cardiomyopathy and New York Heart Association Class 4 ACC Stage D biventricular heart failure with an ejection fraction of 30 to 35% on palliative inotropes. As a result, she also has cardiogenic cirrhosis and stage 3B chronic kidney disease. She initially presented to the inpatient advanced heart failure service for several weeks of weight gain followed by shortness of breath, abdominal bloating, and bilateral lower extremity swelling. Natalie was well known to our institution for several years, and despite an extensive workup, we never found a crystal clear etiology for her dilated cardiomyopathy. The closest we came was actually genetic testing that showed a missense mutation in a gene that has now been associated with both Duchenne muscular dystrophy and dilated cardiomyopathy, but the variant is still of uncertain significance. Devastatingly, she had a younger sibling that had succumbed to complications of heart failure and sepsis only a few years prior, so there was indeed felt to be a strong genetic or familial component. Her last hospitalization was only five months earlier. During that admission, she was diuresed close to euvolemia and discharged home on dobutamine 2.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute. 
She initially did lose weight at home with the aid of 100 milligrams BID torsamide, but eventually her weight did return slowly despite strict dietary and medication adherence. And by one week prior to admission, she was having increased shortness of breath and she was starting to feel more nauseated than usual. She then started having difficulty even climbing just four stairs without stopping. And reluctantly, she presented to the hospital based on advice from her outpatient team. Anjali, that was a perfect introduction to her case. Very succinct, very illustrative. At this point, I get the sense that this is a presentation of garden variety, decompensated heart failure and volume overload. But her nausea is a concerning symptom. And if I'm your fellow, I'm anxiously awaiting your physical exam. Awesome. So vitals on admission were notable for tachycardia to 115, with her blood pressure being 92 over 50. She was adding 98% on room air. She was 70 kilograms, which was noted to be 10 kilograms above her standing dry weight of 60. On exam, she was in no acute distress. She had an S3 gallop and a soft 2 out of 6 holosystolic murmur appreciated at the apex. Her jugular venous pressure was above her mandible at 45 degrees with prominent V waves. And she was speaking in short sentences and you could tell that she had mildly increased work of breathing. Additionally, she had mild bibasilar inspiratory crackles and a distended abdomen. Her extremities were cool bilaterally with four plus pitting edema past her thighs. Wow. So in this description, she fits a wet profile without question. Using my trademark Elon Wittstein invisible swan, which Dan and Amit will remember very well, I would anticipate elevated left-sided pressures due to her S3 and pulmonary exam and elevated right-side pressures due to your description of her JBP and extravascular volume in her abdomen and lower extremities. I guess my question is, is she warm? I really wouldn't bet on it. Was that your impression too? Or did you guys come up with something different? I totally agree. At this point, I was definitely concerned about her clinical status. Tachycardia can be such an ominous sign of low cardiac output in cases of decompensated heart failure, as can be cool lower extremities. And though her volume exam was quite pronounced, we didn't want to let her linger in a malperfused state. Terrific. So, you know, although the vast majority of cases to our hospital for volume overload fit a warm and wet profile, a can't-miss situation is the patient who's just in a low-output state. I've noticed that house staff, and I really include my former self in this as well, are ever eager to address a patient's volume and make the urine flow, but neglect to first address kidney perfusion. We like to say you have to warm them up before you dry them out. It can't be overstated that the kidneys will simply not respond to diuretics if the patient is in any form of shock. Low output, cardiogenic shock, kidney malperfusion, whatever you want to call it, it's not a mechanism of diuretic resistance per se, but it is a box you have to check on every patient not responding to diuretics. And so I'm so happy to hear you recognize this early. So I'm, of course, always interested in a thorough review of the data for a particular presentation. But since it's not that kind of case report and I know you're up for it, maybe I could get a senior resident level assessment or should I say a Janeway level assessment, definitely not a Barker level assessment where you weave in all of the important data as you put it all together. Low blow, low blow here, guys. <laughs> I take issue with this. <laughs> for context for the audience, the Johns Hopkins internal medicine program is broken down into firms or Harry Potter houses. And Dan and myself were a part of the Barker firm, which was, of course, a firm of choice. And Nick and Anjali here are from, what was it? The Was it Jane, Jane, Janeway? But let's move on. I will say, oh my gosh, I love that line that you guys just said, right? Warm them up before you dry them out. It's a great concept. All right. So at this point, my illness script was that we had a young woman with end-stage heart failure presenting for the second time in several months with low output heart failure and volume overload. 
The differential diagnosis, of course, was much broader and included further deterioration of her liver, kidney, or thyroid function. The lab work and other testing was not supportive of this. For Natalie, the initial workup for an etiology to her heart failure had been completed already. And here, the most challenging aspect of her case was discovering a trigger for her decompensation. Now, the true number of etiologies is too broad to cover on the night of an admission. And so I take a simplified approach that addresses the most common can't-miss causes broken up into cardiac and non-cardiac buckets. So in my cardiac bucket, I consider the big three, coronary ischemia, valvular disease, and dysrhythmias, all three of which can be surprisingly subtle. We don't think of coronary ischemia as a silent cause of acute decompensated heart failure, but I have been surprised before and consideration of ischemia is always at the top of my mind. It's really just a box that needs to be checked for every admission. More subtle still can be presentations of progressive valvular disease, typically mitral or aortic valves, and new dysrhythmias. A common trigger for decompensation is that of the patient presenting with a tachyarrhythmia, either uncontrolled AFib, especially with rapid ventricular rates, or incessant atrial or ventricular tachycardias can all cause this. I also think about the contribution of wide left bundle branch blocks and patients that have a high level of right ventricular pacing, as each of these can be responsible for decompensated heart failure and could be reversed with cardiac resynchronization therapy. For my non-cardiac can't-miss causes, I focus on lab work such as checking their thyroid function and kidney function, and then consider any new medications that increase either sodium retention, such as NSAIDs or steroids, or medications with negative inotropic effects, such as calcium channel blockers or beta blockers, which can be uptitrated by outpatient physicians trying to manage tachycardia. Ruling out these five factors before attributing decompensation to non-adherence is so important because most patients do describe occasional lapses in salt restriction and medication schedules, and not all patients develop decompensation. So for our patient Natalie, her thyroid and renal function were totally at baseline, and ischemia had long since been ruled out. Besides, her age placed her in an exceedingly low-risk category. Her TTE showed similar right and left systolic function compared to prior, and it did show moderate mitral regurg, but this was also unchanged from prior. Her ICD was also interrogated, and it did not show any significant arrhythmias, and she was 100% native conduction with a narrow QRS. She hadn't started any new medications, and she reported complete adherence to her diet and heart failure regimen with her mom cooperating her story. So overall, I was very concerned that this might have simply been progression of disease or diuretic resistance. But of course, these remain diagnoses of exclusion. Wow, Anjali, truly senior level. Your schema was beautiful. It just can't be overstated how important it is to think about these underlying causes on the night of admission. Uncovering an underlying cause for volume overload is just so important. And your schema addresses not only common, but also very treatable problems. Coronary reperfusion, percutaneous or surgical valve repair, and catheter ablation or CRT are very durable solutions. They prevent readmissions and they improve mortality. So I have nothing else to add. I mean, really nothing. So how did you initially manage her then? So at this point, given Natalie's nausea and cool extremities, we increased her dobutamine from 2.5 to 5 micrograms per kilogram per minute to first address her perfusion. And within the first hour, her nausea improved and her extremities did warm up. And so at that point, I chose 160 milligrams of IV Lasix. So Anjali, could I have you pause here for a moment? So, I mean, for one, in the interest of clarity, we discussed diuretics a lot in this episode. Diuresis is great for through urine, but natriuresis or the urination of sodium is really the primary goal, as it is the sodium reabsorption that incites water to follow. We'll probably just use these terms interchangeably today, but it's an important distinction. 
But getting back to your choice of furosemide, I wonder if I could put you on the spot to teach us how you teach your interns about inpatient diuresis. I love it. So volume overload and congestion may be one of, if not the most common admission in internal medicine residency. And diuretics remain the first line therapy. There's often acute relief from diuretic therapy, and I'm talking about within minutes. This is attributed to dilation of the pulmonary veins, causing a reduction in left ventricular filling pressures. And this effect actually precedes the onset of diuresis. A common rule of thumb that I tell my interns for initial diuresis strategy is for patients who have been on loop diuretic therapy as an outpatient, their initial IV dosing should be two and a half times their home PO dose. So for example, if your patient was on furosemide 40 milligrams PO daily, it would be reasonable to give them IV furosemide 100 milligrams for their first dose. For patients who are not receiving long-term loop diuretic agents, the starting dose varies according to either their volume overload, their kidney function, and their age. But usually I start at around 40 to 80 IV furosemide. Anjali, within 10 minutes, you've already given senior residents everywhere reasons to reference this episode as they scramble to assemble their morning teaching points, and you've given interns everywhere a place to turn to understand the basics. So we're off to a fantastic start. What did you guys do next? How did you respond? So Anjali, we've achieved the cardio nurse does a great episode on this label already. So I'm so pumped and you're carrying me. So thank you. But to get back to the case, I just can't emphasize enough the acute relief of dyspnea achieved with furosemide. The pulmonary vascular activity of furosemide is independent of any renal or hemodynamic effects. In an important study of nephrectomized dogs, meaning these poor pups had their renal arteries ligated, they were given IV oleic acid, which I guess causes hemorrhagic pulmonary edema in them, which is something I didn't know at all. But then they were administered furosemide with frequent blood gas monitoring after. VQ mismatch and hypoxia improved in the short term without kidneys at all, although these poor dogs had to go through this. And this was demonstrated in human follow-up studies of intubated patients with ESRD as well. So for this reason, I really drill into my interns the need to do furosemide on the night of admission. Your patients are breathless, they're orthopnic, they're not sleeping, and you can make them feel better immediately. As for starting dose, you can feel confident patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fractions have forgiving blood pressure and volume relationships. It's been demonstrated in pressure volume loops that large decreases in intravascular volume cause relatively small blood pressure changes due to reasons that aren't really easily illustrated without the help of a whiteboard. So there are some notable exceptions, and these would be your preload-dependent patients, aortic stenosis, mitral stenosis, and your restrictive and infiltrative cardiomyopathies. So I love your choice, but do you have anything else to add? I just wanted to say that the first dose is really important, but you shouldn't just park it there and forget about it. Constant reevaluation is critical as subsequent doses should be guided by response to the previous dose. It's commonly known that because of the half-life of furosemide, its diuretic effect typically lasts six hours, thus Lasix, which is the trade name of furosemide. But the lesser known attributes are that the IV dose has an onset of around five minutes. Simply put, if you don't have 300 cc's of that nice straw-colored urine within one to two hours of the initial dose, there's no need to wait six hours to redose. Loop diuretics have a steep dose response curve that is sigmoid in shape. It's sort of like an oxygen dissociation curve. So on that y-axis is urine sodium excretion, then on the x-axis is diuretic dose, but the scale's not linear. It's logarithmic, meaning the hash marks on it, each marked unit is an order of magnitude of 10 higher than the previous unit. 
the sigmoid curve has a long runway and it takes a while to lift off. This is really just a graphic illustration of gerosamide's threshold effect. You may experience a wide range of, honestly, just ineffective doses of gerosamide before you see a naturetic effect. But once that threshold is reached, it quickly reaches a ceiling, almost an all or nothing effect. Paired with the logarithmic scale, this is the rationale for doubling diuretic dosing if it hasn't reached a desired effect. To make matters worse, the sigmoid relationship it pushes heart failure shifted down and to the right. So steeper diuretic titrations are needed than seen in an already steep relationship. In practice, this means that every up titration is just double the prior 20, 40, 80, 160, and you kind of tend to see those numbers. If you're seeing someone pee adequately to your dose, your work may not be done either. So redosing is commonly needed. Loop diuretic naturally releases wanes within three to six hours and the kidneys smarten up and will become sodium avid until the next dose. So if you're dosing once daily, a patient has 18 other hours of the day to retain sodium. And this underlies the common recommendation to consider always dosing loop diuretics twice daily. Although I'll add torsamide has different properties and, and it's more often given once daily. This is not usually an issue in the hospital. We give a lot of furosemide in the hospital, but learning this really shifted my outpatient practice. Awesome. So going back to our case, Natalie initially showed good response by her ins and outs, recorded as being net negative two to three liters every day. However, even after giving her furosemide 160 IV TID, her standing weights did not shift at all from that of her admission weight of 72 kilograms. In fact, she gained two kilograms. Early on, she was started on metolazone 2.5 milligrams every other day because we do sometimes see that for our patients who are on maximum doses of loop diuretics, a combination of nephron blockade by adding a thiazide diuretic such as metolazone can be very effective. It's worth stepping back and discussing the ever-important nephron here as a review of what was, for me, along with our endocrine unit, one of the great catastrophes of medical school. So blood enters the glomerulus via the afferent arterial and is filtered into Bowman's capsule. And then the filter travels through the different sections of the nephron, which in series are the proximal convoluted tubule. And then it goes into the descending and then the thin and thick ascending limbs of the loop of Henry. And then they enter the distal convoluted tubule before entering the collecting duct. And then finally, the filtrate is excreted in the urine. And you flush the toilet. Done. (laughs) So each section of a nephron has channels that are sensitive to diuretic agents that we commonly employ. So in the proximal convoluted tubule, sodium reabsorption is blocked by carbonic anhydrase inhibitors. In the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle exists the sodium potassium chloride co-transporters, which are the site of action of loop diuretics. And following them in the distal convoluted tubules are the sodium chloride transporters that are sensitive to thiazides. Also in the distal convoluted tubules and collecting ducts are epithelial sodium channels or ENAC channels, which respond to mineralocorticoid antagonists like spironolactone or direct antagonists like triamterene and aquaporin channels, which are expressed when arginine vasopressinus. A review of this pharmacology is really fundamental. And if you don't feel solid on it, well, for starters, don't feel bad. I'd review this for this show. But also I would encourage pressing pause or just for turning to it later. Wow, Nick, that was an amazing summary of the nephron and a deep dive into where agents interact with it so we can get great diuresis out of our patients that need it. Anjali, I'm sure that tied into kind of your thought process of how and why you use metolazone. Want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I love it. You guys set me up perfectly for talking about metolazone. 
So chronic loop diuretic therapy can lead to waning naturesis over time. And this is called the renal breaking phenomenon. And there are three main causes of this phenomenon. First, the distal convoluted tubules compensate by hypertrophying, which causes a greater density of thiazide-sensitive sodium chloride co-transporters. And that leads to a proportional increase in the ability to reabsorb sodium. A second mechanism of this breaking phenomenon occurs through the macula densa, which as we remember is the collection of specialized cells that line the junction of the ascending limb of the loop of Henle and the distal convoluted tubule. So when the macula densa senses low solute, it stimulates renin production, which then causes aldosterone to activate those ENAC channels Nick was talking about, which also increases sodium resorption. And then the third mechanism is that hypokalemia, which is something we see all the time with our potassium-wasting loop diuretics, is actually a very potent activator of sodium reabsorption. Blocking the sodium-potassium chloride channels in the loop and then blocking the sodium chloride channels just distal them will really cream the ability to reabsorb sodium and potassium. So it's critical to closely monitor these electrolytes when using a loop-thiazide combination. Exactly. And I'd love to just stop and say, if you start noticing that your patient starts becoming hypokalemic, instead of just repleting their potassium, this is a great opportunity to prescribe them an aldosterone antagonist to blunt any of those potassium derangements. So let me also say that I don't have any stock in Pfizer who manufactures spironolactone. I wish I did. I'd be rich. But I'm a huge fan. Aldosterone levels can be up to 20 times higher in patients with heart failure. And chronic loop diuretics increase aldosterone levels in and of themselves through mechanisms you just described. Aldosterone is one of the main bad actors in heart failure and cardiovascular disease to say nothing of its role in sodium avidity across multiple conditions. In heart failure, aldosterone is known to result in systemic hypertension, ventricular hypertrophy, and interstitial fibrosis of cardiac myocytes. Administration of mineralocorticoid antagonists have been consistently shown to have a mortality benefit when used chronically in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction by blunting these processes. It's peculiar because I find that MRAs are commonly the last heart failure medications to be added onto a patient's regimen at our institution, and I can't understand why. They're generally well-tolerated, they have potent neurohormonal effects, and if you believe the North American TopCat results, they know no ejection fraction bounds. But I digress. So, Anjali, get us back on track. What was your next move? Sounds like we haven't made any progress at all. For several days, we kept Natalie on a loop diuretic, a thiazide, and your favorite, an aldosterone antagonist, thus blocking the three major ports of reentry of sodium. She showed good diuretic effect and was actually 18 liters net negative in the first week. Her creatinine and electrolytes were totally stable, but she ended up gaining another three kilograms. Part of the challenge here could be rampant in-stage RAS activation. What sort of guideline medical therapy was she on, and was this part of your solution? No, it absolutely was, but it was challenging. She was already on a fair amount of dobutamine, and previously it was felt that her right ventricle was not tolerating beta blockers, and so they had long been removed from her regimen. Additionally, two different times she was trialed on low-dose ACE inhibitors as an inpatient with prohibitive hypertension, and we certainly felt we couldn't reach for an ARNI or hydralazine ISTN for this reason. We did start an SGLT2 inhibitor inpatient, and these medications do have a relatively humble contribution to diuresis, primarily through glycosinuria. But I guess every little bit counts. So essentially, the only GDMT tolerated was our mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist and an SGLT2 inhibitor. But it's a good conversation to have because blocking RAS activation as occurs with maximally tolerated guideline therapy can give you really substantial benefits from a volume perspective. 
Although we talk a lot about sympathetic and RAS activation leading to myocardial remodeling, fibrosis, and necrosis, it contributes to renal-mediated sodium reabsorption too. Vasoconstriction of the glomerular efferent arterial by angiotensin II enhances sodium reabsorption. Catecholamines and angiotensin activate receptors on the proximal tubule epithelium. Aldosterone upregulates ENAC channels. If you really want to blunt sodium reabsorption, you got to use the full armament of GDMT to block some of the underlying mechanisms for sodium reabsorption in the first place. A great example of this effect was seen in the angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor trials, where patients on ARNI therapy needed their diuretics peeled back or even peeled off after a few weeks on this medication just to minimize the risk of overdiuresis. So it's really interesting you bring that up because there's an important combination effect too. It used to be thought that ACE inhibitors would, by means of stopping the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system at the angiotensin, that they'd also block aldosterone production downstream as well. But it later was apparent that on ACE therapy, 30 to 40% of patients had higher levels of aldosterone than pre-treatment, a phenomenon they called aldosterone escape. That's so interesting. And I think a similar escape was also found in early nepolysin inhibitor trials. Attempts to block breakdown of natriuretic peptides was successful, but there was an angiotensin II escape that led to a net neutral treatment effect. And so treatment with a combination of neprilysin and angiotensin receptor blocker was a solution. And we all know the paradigm trial success story all too well at this point. Yes, yes. To truly blunt RAS activation and thus sodium reabsorption, one should use an ACE, ARB, ARNI in combination with an MRA. Honestly, it's no different than what you previously discussed with loop diuretics and distal convoluted tubule hypertrophy. Our failure is like a pharmacologic game of whack-a-mole. Totally. So as I said, she was diuresing, but gaining weight. And the next logical move, at least we thought at this point, seemed to be to move from bolus dosing of furosemide to a continuous infusion. And so she was started on a furosemide drip at 20 milligrams an hour. There wasn't a particularly elegant rationale. We were just willing to try anything. And to back up, there is a role for continuous infusion to avoid ototoxicity, as boluses of IV furosemide cause peaks and troughs, and it is the high peaks that lead to ototoxicity. But I think more so than this was just the anecdotal notion that you may see greater net diuresis with a continuous infusion. Yeah, so this has actually been studied in small randomized clinical trials, the largest being the Diuretic Optimization Strategies Evaluation, or the DOSE trial. They randomized roughly 300 patients to either Q12 IV furosemide boluses or an equivalent dose as a continuous infusion. There's no difference in secondary endpoints of change in weight, nor net fluid loss, nor serum creatinine. So I'm sure that's why you say there wasn't an elegant reason, but my suspicion was the team was aware of this trial. It often gets quoted on rounds, and I bet dopamine was discussed on rounds too. So a common strategy that gets discussed is whether low-dose or so-called renal-dose dopamine should be used to augment diuresis. So the concept here is that at less than 3 micrograms per kilogram per minute, dopamine acts on the renal dopaminergic receptors, increasing renal blood flow and possibly conferring a renal protective effect, as well as enhancing decongestion. However, previous studies in HEFREF did not demonstrate a greater decongestive effect. Additionally, we often quote the Ropadope trial, which famously included the Osler House staff as one of the contributing authors due to the highly motivated patient enrollment from all of our firms. 
This study used a patient population with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and also failed to show a decongestive benefit over standardized therapy with the administration of low-dose dopamine. So I guess the takeaway is that at this time, we don't really have a randomized controlled trial to support the continuous infusion of furosemide nor low-dose dopamine in addition to diuretics in patients with heart failure. So my suspicion, Anjali, is exactly what you said, that providers weren't expecting, based on all the data you just presented, to get more out of the continuous effusion than they did with the bolus dosing. And honestly, providers can kind of have a dealer's choice and, and pick whichever one works for them. In this situation, I think they were just trying something different and hoping for a positive result. I think they just really wanted to try to help. Agreed. And after six days of a furosemide drip, metolazone every other day, spironolactone, and an SGLT2 inhibitor, she had a net diuresis of another 13 liters, though she did steadily gain another 4 kilograms, again by standing measurement. In the midst of this, she also suffered from hyponatremia, requiring tolbactan at least once. Tolbactan is a vasopressin 2 receptor antagonist, which inhibits vasopressin, and so it blocks the reabsorption of free water. Now, by hospital day 14, she was switched from metolazone to an intravenous thiazide chlorothiazide, also known as diuril, at a 500 milligram twice daily dose. Now, there are a couple of reasons we did this. There are some arguments that chlorothiazide is more potent than metolazone, but this is really a matter of debate. Really, the biggest reason we did this is because chlorothiazide is an IV agent and not only was just grossly volume overloaded. And so we were willing to see if there was a component of decreased gut absorption with metolazone. But a major part of the story just wasn't adding up to me. We weren't actually having problem diuresing her, per se. She was massively fluid negative, but we weren't making any headway in either her physical exam or her congestive symptoms. So we knew Natalie. She hated being in the hospital, and this wasn't surreptitious water intake or dietary indiscretion. It should be clear to the audience that this wasn't a lack of response to diuretics. Indeed, she was making tons of urine. She had good renal function. She had stable-ish electrolytes. Often patients with advanced heart failure will fail to respond to diuretics, but this was more of an issue with overall sodium avidity. So this makes more sense, and I think it really contextualizes our decisions that followed, because afterwards we started her on high-dose spironolactone, up-titrating her daily dose of 25 milligrams to 100 milligrams BID. And the rationale was that Natalie also had cardiogenic cirrhosis. Volume overload in heart failure and cirrhosis have a shared pathophysiology, which is underfilling of arterial baroreceptors. In heart failure, this underfilling is due to inadequate cardiac output, and in cirrhosis, it's due to splanchnic vasodilation and sequestration of circulatory volume. This causes RAS and sympathetic activation in each condition, and together they produce pronounced hyperaldosteronism. So in effect, what we were trying to do here was block the previously described effects of aldosterone, namely the upregulation of our sodium chloride co-transporters and ENAC channels leading to sodium reabsorption in the distal convoluted tubule. In fact, we actually checked an aldosterone level in Natalie, and it was five times the upper limit of normal. Yes, exactly. Low doses of spironolactone have been studied extensively, but for instance, in the RAIL study, it's believed that the mortality benefit was independent of naturesis, as 25 milligrams of spironolactone had no effect on secondary analyses of sodium retention, urinary sodium excretion, or body weight changes. In comparative trials in cirrhosis, for instance, much higher doses of aldosterone antagonists have outperformed furosemide, leading to recommendations of spironolactone dosing as high as 400 milligrams a day refractory ascites. 
the Athena HF study evaluated high, like 100 milligrams versus low 25 milligrams or placebo dose spironolactone. And over a course of 96 hours, there was no difference in length of stay, symptoms or volume assessment. But this study has been criticized for its short duration. So it takes time for MRAs to convert to active metabolites, especially if there's hepatic congestion. And the effects may take several days to notice. Some very small studies, I mean, we're talking three patients, six patients, had previously shown positive effects on sodium balance and sodium excretion by days five to seven, but no large randomized controlled trials have been conducted. You know, guys, this really highlights a real clinical conundrum. You know, when it comes to edema, we have a differential for cardiosis, nephrosis, and cirrhosis being big players. And when you have all three interacting on a level, you know, that's macro in terms of leaky capillaries and high hydrostatic pressures, and that could be very hard to treat. And then again, when you overlay that with the pharmacokinetic effects of these organs not functioning tip-top shape, it just makes it so complicated as you're really highlighting. It just makes us appreciate for when the body works well or like, you know, when somebody comes in with one of those organs dysfunctional and you can kind of treat them and get a good successful result quite rapidly. You know, you guys are really doing a great job of painting a picture of complexity here. And I understand you guys must have been scratching your heads and wondering what to do next. Well, well, Dan, that's why they started off with a preamble that this case is fascinating in both its complexity and simplicity. You know, we do diuresis all the time, but this is next level. I totally agree. This was a very complicated case for me. She continued to diarrhea liters of fluid, 24 in the past week, and then a cumulative total of 55 liters of fluid, which is enough really to fill half of a bathtub. But surprisingly, her weight still rose to over 80 kilograms, which was eight over her admission weight and 20 kilograms over her dry weight. So, so Nick, I, I just wanted to ask a simple question. How was she gaining weight if she was so negative? Yeah. So I haven't found an answer to this. And truthfully, it seems to defy the conservation of matter and other laws of the universe I've long since used as constants that ground me in reality. And I think honestly, in an effort to maintain my steady state, not to evolve into the magical and the mystical, I just ignored them altogether, these facts at least, and just moved forward. But to answer your question a little more honestly, is that I think that it has to do with her sodium avidity. And I think it's just illustrating the end stage nature of her disease. But okay, so there's a good learning opportunity here. In every challenging case, there's always a moment to step back and revisit a bigger picture and challenge any of your fundamental assumptions. That's so true. And and that's exactly what we did at this point. It does bear noting that Natalie was such a beloved patient among the heart failure team. And given her advanced heart failure, she had previously been considered for organ transplantation at our center and others. However, was deemed not a candidate due to multi-organ disease and her extensive comorbidities. Thus, medical therapy was indeed the route chosen. Yeah, that's appropriate. Because we're limited to medical management in this case, what you're describing here does meet a definition of diuretic resistance, simply defining this is an inadequate quantity of naturoresis despite an adequate diuretic regimen. It carries with it a very poor prognosis. During any two-week rotation, you may run into kidney misbehavior of three main flavors. There is the topic we've already explored of someone not responding to diuretics, simply not making urine, and this could be your cold patient. And then there's perhaps the most common, which is deteriorating renal function with or without adequate response to diuretics. And finally, there's the situation we find ourselves in, which is a little more unique, but it's a patient with adequate production of urine, but lack of a change in weight and volume exams. All of them are really frustrating for us as providers, for sure. But I think more so for patients who typically despise these long hospitalizations, they get two-a-day blood work, their sleepless nights, and trips to and from the bathroom. 
These last two scenarios, deteriorating renal function with a volume exam that suggests that you have volume to give, and the second, which is adequate diuresis without a change in weight, are indeed opportunities to consider getting more information. I don't know if you guys did that right at this point, but what was the discussion? Our team was exactly on the same page with you. So on hospital day 22, she was transferred to our CCU for pulmonary artery catheter placement to guide further management. Her initial hemodynamics on dobutamine 5 showed elevated filling pressures with a central venous pressure of 20 millimeters of mercury, a pulmonary artery pressure of 50 over 35, main pulmonary artery pressure of 41, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 35, cardiac output of 6.8 liters per minute, cardiac index of 3.8 liters per minute per meter squared, and systemic vascular resistance of 646 seconds over centimeters to the fifth. This right heart cath is essential. Here we're not surprised by her filling pressures. They're elevated on the right and the left. But I will say it's not always the case that we're not surprised by the findings. She was under the care of Dr. Steve Shulman. He's the director of our CCU and he's my fellowship director. So I've been on with Dr. Shulman before when placing a swan and he'll announce his guests and then go around the room and have the fellow and the senior resident and the intern announce theirs in turn. And I'll have you guess. So who do you think of those four, the fellow, the senior resident, Dr. Shulman and the intern, who's the most accurate? Oh, I think obviously it would probably be Dr. Shulman and then the fellows would be close to and then house staff only if they were Janeway. Well, I was going to say that based on the teaching so far, that of everyone above, that I would guess that Anjali was right, but not because she's Janeway, but because she's Anjali and all the prep that's gone into this case. So you'd think so, right? You'd think that Anjali would be the most right, or Dr. Shulman or Ahmed or Dan, but no, it's usually the intern, right? So they'll stand in a corner, they'll be terrified, wondering if they'll even be in the right ballpark, but an ever-skilled test taker, the intern, will suggest something in the middle of everyone else and essentially be the closest. But the point is not whether who's right and who's not. The point is that even someone as experienced as Dr. Shulman knows that getting this right heart calf in the moment will often surprise you. And he's never been too proud to assume that he'll be wrong. And I think he says this all the time. He's often wrong. And Lynn Stevenson out of Vanderbilt has published on this, that often we are wrong about our own physical exam and assumptions about invasive hemodynamics. So patients may have aggressive TR that leads to overestimation of their jugular venous pressures. They may have a habitus that hides the true intravascular volume and leads to inaccurate estimates in either direction. They may have a mixed presentation of heart failure. And also volume status is simply a proxy for the pressure measurement in the first place and no substitute for the real thing. Finally, patients may just have their own unique physiology altogether. For all of these reasons and maybe more, never be shy about suggesting or getting an invasive assessment of hemodynamics with a right heart catheterization when you're in this type of situation where you just don't have a handle on what somebody's physiology is. That is such a great point. And I think the obvious things that we were looking at were to confirm what we thought we knew, just like you were saying, and to evaluate for anything that could surprise us, a shockingly low cardiac output, for example. Additionally, I always tried to identify where the primary problem exists that might be causing those elevated pressures. So patients can have a lesion anywhere they please, but the common places are an aortic valve that's stenotic or regurgitant, a stick or ischemic left ventricle, a stenotic or regurgitant mitral valve with elevated left atrial pressures. Meanwhile, elevated pulmonary pressures can be from isolated pulmonary venous hypertension or the far more common primary pulmonary artery hypertension. And lastly, isolated right ventricular or tricuspid valves can be the issue for elevated right-sided pressures. They really are all so different and have implications for treatment. 
And I love this example of locating the lesion. I remember back to my neurology rotations, which were not very successful, but in every morning case report, they present all of the cortical and peripheral symptoms that were accompanying whatever the overnight resident admitted. And they really try to locate the source of the lesion. They try to locate it to the cortex or the brainstem or the spinal cord or the peripheral nerves. But it's really an elegant exercise in diagnostic reasoning. And I think it's very easily applied to invasive hemodynamic assessments as well. And for Natalie, all of her high pressures seem to start on the left side and cause a backup of pressure through her pulmonary arterial bed all the way up to her right heart because her wedge, her mean PA pressure and her right atrial pressure, well, they're all high. Yes. And you can take it a step further, too. So if they're all high, is there a way to tell if one is disproportionately high? And the answer is yes. So we use the RA to wedge pressure ratio and either the transpulmonary gradient, also called the TPG, or the transdiastolic gradient, also known as the TDG, to tease this out. So the RA to wedge has been associated with RV failure in multiple situations, but it's been validated in an outpatient cohort of patients with heart failure as well. And it is what it sounds like. If you have a higher than expected RA compared to a wedge, then it suggests a bigger problem on the right rather than the left side. And so that's not that hard to intuit. But the trouble is really in remembering the cutoff. But an easy way to conceptualize it is in considering that we are accustomed to normal RA pressures being about half that of wedge pressures, right? Like a normal RA is maybe less than six to eight and a normal wedge is less than 12 to 15. So a ratio that approximates 0.5 is typically normal. But if you have an RA of 15 and a wedge of 15 and a ratio of one, well, a wedge of 15 is normal, but an RA of 15 is highly abnormal. So the ratio approximates one is much more suggestive of isolated right heart dysfunction. Likewise, if you want to evaluate whether someone has intrinsic pulmonary hypertension or if they have high PA pressures as a result of a high wedge, you use a similar concept in your calculation. So the TPG uses the difference between the mean pulmonary artery pressure and the wedge. It's just the mean pulmonary artery pressure minus the wedge. You subtract the two. Or a similar but more specific calculation is the transdiastolic gradient, which is just the PA diastolic measurement minus the wedge. Normal values for the TPG are less than 12, and normal values for the TDG are less than 7. But more important than focusing on memorizing these numbers is just to create the good habit of actually taking the extra time, calculating these, and trying to locate where someone's unique lesion exists. It's important because it can have major management implications. Like we might employ RV support, or you might use pulmonary arteriodilators in certain situations. Wow, that's such a great pearl. So Natalie's R8 to wedge was 0.57. Her TPG was 6 and her TDG was 0. So her left ventricle seems to be the root cause of her high pressures across her whole system. We also didn't have a surprisingly low cardiac index suggesting that we needed more support. But there was one interesting takeaway in that she had a much higher than expected cardiac output and a very low SVR. Her vasodilatory state and splanchnic vasodilation from cirrhosis were indeed felt to play a role and she was initiated on octreotide and vasopressin, and her cardiac output subsequently dropped precipitously in the first 12 hours to a final cardiac index of 2 to 2.1. High output heart failure was not felt to be the primary process underlying her presentation due to a long history of right heart catheterizations without such elevated cardiac outputs. Lastly, acetazolamide was added to her regimen. 
Acetazolamide is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor that can blunt sodium reabsorption in the proximal tubule, but will also reduce serum bicarbonate levels. Acetazolamide isn't at this moment necessarily an evidence-based approach, but it is under current investigation as a combination strategy with furosemide. For now, I see it mostly used in cases where you have seriously elevated bicarbonate, perhaps due to diuresis, but you just still need to push forward. Awesome. So after we got her SWAN numbers, we actually opted for a slightly different diuretic strategy. She was initiated on 150 cc's of hypertonic saline, followed by 200 milligrams of IV furosemide, in addition to 500 milligrams of two to three times daily of IV chlorothiazide. Anjali, that's definitely a big change in approach, but haven't we talked about trying to get rid of salt? Why are we giving her salt? Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Shulman has a favorite quote, paraphrasing Winston Churchill, never give up, never, 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 never give up. And I think this became a real emphasis for the rest of her hospitalization. I think there was a lot of disappointment to this point, right? We as providers felt like her treatment failure was really our failure. And I think there were other providers that just had a really healthy skepticism that she could leave the hospital at all. But where Dr. Scholin goes, everyone follows. And so let me explain why we chose that, right? So the concept of hypertonic saline administration and heart failure, it's paradoxical. And for the time being, it can be controversial. The rationale is that in heart failure, neurohormonal activation reduces renal blood flow. Hypertonic saline achieves a rapid elevation of intravascular solute with a subsequent rise in osmotic pressure. It's like a vacuum that sucks extravascular free water into the intravascular space. And the expansion of that plasma volume is really seen and felt by the kidneys by means of an increase in renal blood flow. So pair that increased renal blood flow with furosemide administration. And what you might have is the ability to improve furosemide delivery in the loop of Henley, potentiating its action. So the strategy of hypertonic saline combined with high-dose loop diuretics, it's been studied and it's previously reported to produce greater natriuresis and greater urine volume than high-dose loop diuretics alone among patients with acute decompensated heart failure with diuretic resistance. Although these studies have not been widely replicated in a small but really provocative Italian study of 107 patients randomized to diuresis with hypertonic saline and furosemide versus furosemide alone, patients achieved a greater weight reduction at 24 hours, a shorter hospital stay and preserved renal function. But that wasn't even close to the most interesting finding. So they followed these subjects at an average interval of nearly three years. And I don't really understand why, but they found a substantial and durable reduction in hospital readmissions for heart failure and also a durable and substantial mortality benefit over the three-year period. The authors were not easily able to explain the findings, but one hypothesis is that the sodium loading not only had direct renal blood flow effects, but also neuromoral modulation. Subsequent studies have been undertaken to evaluate this curious finding, and suffice to say, in a 2014 systematic review and meta-analysis, it compared 10 randomized controlled trials, over 2,000 patients, they substantiated the same findings of decreased heart failure readmissions, decreased mortality, and preserved renal function. I'm not sure we entirely understand these findings, but it's been hypothesized that maybe this is no different than the era of beta blockers, which were once considered forbidden, and advocates of their treatment of patients with heart failure were considered perverse. We encounter these types of paradoxes frequently in medicine, and, you know, only time will tell. Nick, I'm so glad that you're bringing up this paradox. I think the story is yet to unfold. As you mentioned, we have good data for salt restriction for hypertension, but really no good data that salt restriction is good for chronic or acute heart failure. 
And in fact, as you said, there's some observational data that salt restriction may be associated with increased mortality. The reasons, of course, being unclear, but as you said, that salt restriction can increase uh, RAS activation, right? And so I'm really proud to say that one of my co-fellows, Rob Montgomery, just started an RCT to actually randomize patients with acute decompensated heart failure who are getting intravenous diuresis to salt tabs. So I think stay tuned, but we've got a lot to learn and things we take for granted, we probably shouldn't. Yeah, this kind of reminds me of like what people do with cirrhotic patients that really need diuretics because their volume overload because of third space. They give albumin or they give volume to remove volume. Here we're giving salt to remove salt. Definitely not intuitive, but when you kind of explain those mechanisms and potentially mechanisms that we'll learn in the future, I'm sure this could really make sense and maybe change the way we think about heart failure. And I learned this in medical school and it really guides the way I think about diuresis and also guides the way I uh, educate my patients is salt is the currency for the body, right? Salt is the currency that the kidneys use to exchange. Basically, it's the money and water follows the money. So the kidney has to use salt as a way to excrete, also to retain, and that will basically have the effects on volume. So just just a very, very wonderful discussion about how we do something that is totally against the grain that may actually end up panning out to be something very fruitful. You know, our co-resident, Dan Reza Zanozzi, who is now a nephrology attending at NGH, he always said, he said, you know, cardiologists think about diuresis in terms of water and nephrologists think about diuresis in terms of salt. And I'm just so proud of this episode, Nick and Anjali, that I think you're, you're upturning that we are thinking in terms of salt. Yeah, those are great examples. And I'm glad that we have like a good analogy. I, I know Reza Manish, when he was my Brancati attending, he would always say to try to bring in other organ systems or things that people are used to doing when you're trying to explain a difficult topic. And so that was a really helpful way to explain this. All right. So following these two strategies, Natalie lost a net of 21 liters of fluid and her weight dropped to 66 kilograms by hospital day 35. I think her most impressive display of a turnaround to her sodium avidity came on day 37 when she was discovered to be bacteremic and all diuretics were stopped for three and a half days. However, surprisingly, she did not gain any weight during this period. She was noted to continue to diurese by her eyes and nose tracking, being net negative over this time. We did resume diuretics on hospital day 40, however, at a fraction of her previous dose. She was using 160 one to two times daily of furosemide with metolazone, and she lost another six kilograms and her weight stayed stable at 60 kilograms, believed to be within a few kilograms of her dry weight. She was eventually discharged on her home regimen of 100 milligrams BID torsemide and metolazone every other day. She was able to leave the hospital and be with her family for two consecutive holidays, which was really her big goal. She was visited by palliative care during this admission and did indeed choose to follow a more palliative approach. And we are sad to report that she has since passed away, which was a truly devastating loss. Yeah, so I was really affected by this case. Natalie was such an amazing person and somebody whose strength and determination were really inspiring. I can't imagine having the same amount of grace and courage in the face of her illness, especially if you remember after losing her sibling shortly before her presentations. It's just devastating. And her presence was a real gift to our staff. And in the final days of her hospitalization, I remember seeing her playing games online with her family. She was such a bright, talkative, cheerful person. Getting her home in a relatively compensated state was nothing short of a miracle given the first three weeks of her hospital stay. And this case presentation is really in her memory. And I think it goes without saying, I mean, I'm not a parent, but I just can't fathom losing not one, but two children at such a young age. And her parents were just incredible and were really proponents of 
medical education and would be so supportive of spreading the word about diuretic resistance and diuresis in general and just about heart failure. You know, Anjali, Nick, reflecting on the patient like you just did is just really commendable and also so important in keeping the humanity within cardiology. You know, here we've done a deep dive into failure of diuresis. We've gone really, really down to the nephron level and it's easy to get lost in the weeds and almost kind of use that deep dive to almost push away our emotions that we feel when we take care of patients who don't do well. And reflecting on this, obviously, you know, it's a real honor and privilege for us to share this patient's story in a way that she would have liked to educate and further the field so that we could take care of patients like her better. And I really appreciate what you had said about your reflections on this patient's case. It's just something that's so important and we would never want to forget to mention. You know, I'm so touched by the the tenderness and care with which you describe not just her as a patient, but her as a person. It's clear that over the course of her disease, you really got to know her and appreciate her. And, you know, here we cardiners were indebted to her for for teaching us, teaching us so much and for, you know, grateful for you two, Anjali and Nick, to reflect on her story in such a way as to educate so many people. And I'm taking away so many lessons from this case and this story. And really, you're giving me a way to think about approach to diuretic resistance, at least in terms of a framework, in terms of what is causing us to not diurese somebody adequately. And over the course of this discussion, I'm thinking there are three big generalizable buckets. One is just a pharmacology. Do we have our dose of diuretic right? Is it being absorbed if it's an oral route using the route itself, intravenous, even bolus or continuous infusion, right? So we've got to make sure that our pharmacology is appropriately matched to the situation. The second big bucket are the extra renal causes. Here, I would think cardiovascular, right? At some point, you took a step back and said, hey, you know, are we even getting enough perfusion to the kidneys to have impactful diuresis? Is the kidney seeing enough salt and diuretic load? And so, you know, do we have a sufficient cardiac output and do we need to augment the cardiac output by impacting afterload or inotropy? Are we actually right about the fluid status? Maybe they're not fluid overloaded. Maybe they're actually dry because, uh, Nick, you outlined so beautifully how there can be a disconnect between our physical exam and the true hemodynamic numbers. And so here, a right heart cath can be very useful. And of course, furosemide is carried by albumin. And so especially when there is a hepatic involvement or cardiac cachexia, is the albumin level too low? And that can be impacting it. And the third big bucket is all the renal causes that Anjali, you went over so nicely, right? The, all the breaking phenomenon. If we're blocking the loop of Henle, we have augmented salt reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubule. We have hypertrophy and reabsorption in the distal and the convoluted tubule and the collecting duct. You know, between diuretic doses, we have increased salt avidity because of increased RAS activation. And so sequential nephron blockade and appropriate diuretic dosing are all important to consider. So I'm definitely taking away from this, at least cognitively, how to think about the different causes of inadequate diuresis and for each of those issues, how to address them. So Nick and Anjali, thank you so much for for introducing Natalie to us and giving us so many pearls to take away for things we see all the time. Indeed, this was both complex and simple at the same time. No, thank you. This was so much fun. And I'm so glad that I got to do this with Anjali and you guys and, and have this great hangout. So total blast. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so, so much. This was so much fun. And I learned so much from Nick and and all of you guys. I'm I'm so glad we got to do this. And I I just want to say thank you guys again. And I'm particularly so proud of this discussion. I've seen you both work over the years in your training. More of you, Nick, I've seen you since intern year and just watch you blossom into such a, a wonderful clinician and a wonderful educator. And I can't, I've got goosebumps all around and I can't say enough of how proud I am to hear you do such a phenomenal job of walking through this very complex case in such a 
phenomenal way and breaking down very complex physiology and pharmacokinetics in such an understandable and digestible way. So thanks, guys. This was a real treat. And now for the eCPR segment of this episode, we are so honored to hear the thoughts of Dr. Nisha Galotra, a heart failure cardiologist and director of heart failure disease management at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. Hi, Cardi Nerds. This is Nisha Galothra, heart failure cardiologist at Johns Hopkins and director of heart failure disease management. Thanks so much for having me here today to contribute to your expert discussion on diuretic management in a very complex and challenging patient. So I wanted to highlight a few excellent points that you all made in describing Natalie's case. The first is how do we choose the right diuretic dose for our patients? And there are multiple factors that contribute. This includes what their home dose is, what their renal function is, and what their reason for decompensation is. For example, someone who may have a mild decompensation or an obvious insult such as dietary non-discretion may diarrhea much more easily compared to someone who has progressive end-stage cardiomyopathy and worsening low output. I also want to highlight that we really want to leverage the hospitalization to achieve effective diuresis. In the ADIR study, which is a national registry of thousands of heart failure patients, we demonstrated that we actually do not effectively diurese patients, with 20% of patients leaving the hospital actually with weight gain. And so some of the points that you highlighted with Natalie's case are important, as in this situation, you were able to get fluid off. However, we continue to see weight gain. So that subset of patients needs further exploration and investigation. The other thing I want to highlight is that we achieve adequate decongestion. So as you all mentioned, Lasix can actually result in pretty acute initial dyspnea relief. And so patients can feel a lot better even while they're still in the emergency department before they've been admitted. And this may throw us off and make us think that they're ready to go home faster than they actually are. So really leverage the hospitalization to achieve as many markers of decongestion as you can. Because even those patients with more markers of decongestion, as seen in the DOSE trial, which you all mentioned, which helped elucidate the best strategies in terms of diuretic dosing for inpatients, they found that even patients with markers of decongestion had high 30 and 60-day event rates, including rehospitalization. The other thing that I want to mention is that it's really important to identify why your patient may be hitting a wall and developing diuretic resistance. We really need to recognize the cause and whether or not you need to actually escalate care rather than flagging them with one diuretic after another. So this is a great opportunity at which one should pause and think about, do we need a right heart catheterization? Are we missing something? Like you mentioned, is this more of an RV problem or an LV problem? Is it more of a pulmonary hypertension issue or is it more of a low output issue? Recognizing the cause of diuretic resistance also includes recognizing cardiogenic shock. Does a patient need inotropic assisted diuresis or do we need to escalate to mechanical circulatory support and consider a patient for LVAD or heart transplantation, for example? Particularly in our patients who have had recurrent hospitalizations despite adequate diuresis and adherence to their medications, one should have a really low threshold to investigate the cause for their decompensation and lack of response to diuresis. Lastly, I'm going to highlight the role of palliative care, as you did beautifully in Natalie's case. In patients with recurrent hospitalizations and all of our best efforts to diurese, sometimes end-stage heart failure takes its natural course. And for those patients who may not be candidates for advanced therapies, 
one should also consider palliation or at least involving our palliative care team to help the patient and their caregivers engage in a conversation about their goals of care and quality of life. So cardio nerds, in summary, I want to highlight that heart failure is the number one cause for hospitalization of adults in the United States, and congestion is the number one reason that heart failure patients are admitted. So our goal, and your goal today with this podcast, is to really learn the nuances of diuresis and optimize patients as much as possible during their hospitalization. And this includes the aspects of diuresis that you outlined so well, but also recognition of how other heart failure medications, such as oral vasodilators, afterload reduction, or inotropes can help assist in diuresis when appropriate. And lastly, don't fail to recognize the patient who's developing diuretic resistance and subsequently recognize the cause for their diuretic resistance. Oftentimes, these patients may need an escalation in their care such as mechanical circulatory support or inotropic support. Often patients with advanced heart failure will fail to respond. Often... Please try again. Oh, what is that? Wow. Spirit. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, whoever, whoever that was uh, really doesn't like this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? No, serious? Like, what the hell? Why is the diuretic not working? Yeah, something's going wrong here. <laughs> 